Welcome back to the 154th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. And today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the RNC is a little bit low on cash. How the incumbents are probably going to win, but maybe there is a chance to dethrone one of them in the Iowa and New Hampshire primaries. And there's also an interesting article about the SEC going to battle with private equity funds. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So we obviously hear a lot about the RNC and DNC, especially going into a large national election. But are the national parties slash committees, are they a failing vehicle to win these elections? And let's be clear, I don't think that, okay, hey, the DNC is not capable of winning an election. The RNC is not capable of winning an election. I'm not trying to make a, a claim like that. But are they slowly going out of style? Is the populist wave going to dethrone the party system as we know it? Or will it only reinforce it more as those parties envelop some of these more populist ideas? Or maybe they even envelop some of the more libertarian you know, candidates and things like that, even though the Libertarian Party is growing to some degree right now. So is there a better system? That's basically the question here. If you have any thoughts, throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what you have to say. All right, let's jump to our first story from The Daily Beast. RNC members acknowledge the fundraising is, quote, in the toilet, end quote. So, obviously, the RNC, they are going through a lot right now. They had a lot of fundraising going on during the 2022 cycle. They were trying to get a lot of different candidates in. We had the idea of a red wave and then turned into a little bit of a red trickle. And a lot of the money nowadays, a lot of the money from the base is going more directly towards Trump than to the RNC. At least that's how I'm observing some things right now. Now, do I have all the internals? No, of course not. The RNC is going to play some cards close to their chest. But this article highlights the fact that, well, you know, maybe they're not doing as well off as some may think they are. Quote, when Republican National Committee members met in Milwaukee last week, many of them had one persistent question on their minds. Why has fundraising slumped? At the start of the 2022 midterm cycle, the RNC had twice as much cash on hand as Democratic National Committee, which was, wow, okay, hold on, let's take a second here, 80.5 million versus 38.8 million. Now the RNC has less than half as much on hand as the DNC, 11.8 million to the DNC's 25.4 million. The reversal comes after long-run RNC chair Ron McDaniel fought off a contentious challenge to her leadership earlier this year, a victory secured partially through her pledge to prioritize parties' fundraising efforts. But the current state of affairs has left many RNC members concerned about the group's financial status just as the 2024 cycle begins to pick up steam, with some of them pinning for a not-so-distant past. So, why is this probably happening? One, the RNC overall, you know, is focused on the presidential coming up. They are obviously funneling some money into some important 2023 races, like I'm in Kentucky now, so they're putting some money aside or over towards, 
the gubernatorial and the attorney generals, the ag committee. There's a whole bunch of elections in 2023 that are going to be important. So, of course, they're putting money aside for that as well. But a lot of fundraising is probably going to be based off of the presidential candidate. They're going to say, help us get this man into the office. And that's how you're going to reach the most people in the widest part of the base, because a lot of people just don't vote during these non-presidential elections. You always see a little bit of a lower turnout. I mean, there's maybe a little bit of an exception with Glenn Youngkin, because his was in an off year and turnout was a little bit higher than normal. But the point still stands that for the most part, if you look at overall trends, a lot of people don't show up for the midterms, which means they're less passionate about them, which means they're also willing to give a little bit less money. And also, it's not an even year midterm either, or it's not even a even year elections that are going on in 2023. Like at least 2022, you can get some of the people who are moderately involved, who care a little bit from some of these major states that have a lot of different Senate or House elections in 2022. A lot of these 2023 elections are more gubernatorial elections, so you may get some fundraising from particular states, but not all of them are happening at the same time. So that could explain why you're not necessarily getting as much fundraising dollars. But I also think it's the Trump effect. Until a lot of the MAGA base, who would probably be willing to give over some of their money to the RNC if they knew Trump was going to be the nominee, or a lot of the DeSantis folks knew that DeSantis was going to be the nominee, a lot of people are holding off because they don't want to give their... There are some people that are really loyal and will give their money to the RNC and support whoever is the candidate because they like all of them or they just like more of what the Republicans have to say. But there are also some that are like, oh, I'm not going to give you... I'm not going to give this vehicle for victory my money unless you are supporting my ideals and the person that I like. Now, obviously, it, it's not that simple. There's another part to it, which is the RNC has gone stale a little bit. It feels as though they're not necessarily pushing any major new issues. They're kind of on these same talking points that they've been ginning up and talking about and using to rile up the base over the last few years. And we saw how that worked out for them in 2022. So maybe some people are tired of it. Some people want to see some actual results. Maybe there's lots of different reasons why their numbers are slumping a little bit. But the article goes on to have a probably more cohesive opinion on it. So let's jump to them and get away from my stupid ramblings as someone who is not actually a RNC member, therefore not fully informed and not getting the little briefing notes that some of the higher-ups probably are. Quote, the fundraising has gone in the toilet, this RNC member said. They're not raising money. While fundraising might not be abysmal, 50.8 million raised this year compared to the DNC's 59.5 million, the bottom line is far from ideal. And lackluster totals appear to reflect McDonald's previous budgetary decisions, which have left the party still nursing a fiscal hangover from a withering 2022 cycle that hit the GOP harder than the Democrats. They are way behind, the previous mentioned RNC member said. Quote, they don't have money in the bank. An RNC spokesman didn't respond to dispute that the party was behind the eight ball and, in fact, provided a statement and highlighted the cost of what promises to be an expensive year ahead. The RNC is investing in party infrastructure and our data-driven ground game that will bolster the eventual nominee to victory come next fall, spokesperson Emma Vaughn said. So, you know, end quote. Let's talk about the fact here that they're not actually saying, oh, yeah, 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 our fundraising, they're admitting the fundraising is not great, or at least the RNC member who's quoted here is saying that. But when 
the top brass or some of the representatives from the party itself are actually asked, they're not taking responsibility. And let's be clear, I, I think this is something that the DNC would do too. They would say, oh, no, we're, uh, you know, the reason we're so strapped for cash is because we're in investing and blah, blah, blah. But they don't have to make that argument and they don't even actually have to make those investments because guess what? They don't necessarily think that there's any challengers to Joe Biden. So they don't have to spend money on primary debates, on putting up caucuses, having different town halls, sponsoring different events for each candidate so they can come and have different conversations. No, Joe Biden is the one. And I'm pretty sure, and I, I know I'm reading some minds here, I'm pretending to know the the cards that they hold close to their chest, but I'm pretty sure they're very confident if it is a Joe Biden versus a Trump again, we've seen this election play out before. And whether or not they're right, whether or not the sentiment has changed among the populace, whether or not they'll have to work harder to get a positive image of Joe Biden out there and they'll have to spend lots of ad dollars to make sure that he gets back to the White House, whether or not you think that's the case, I truly believe that they believe that if it is is Trump versus Biden again, Biden will win. So they can actually hold a little bit of money in reserve. They don't necessarily have to build out, they could, in theory, believe that they don't have to build out their ground game as much. And the RNC is like, no, 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 no. We're not even going to take that risk. We're building it out because we could have Donald Trump, who everybody knows and already has an opinion about, so the ground game wouldn't necessarily be as important to inform people, but rather just to get them to come out and vote and maybe change their mind, versus some other candidates who aren't necessarily are as well known, and you may have to convince some more voters, and that's why that ground game would be extremely important. And also, I, the RNC has had this focus for a long time. They've always had more robust, or at least over the last few years, and by the last few years, I mean the last few decades, they've had a more robust ground game in different states. They've been really working to strengthen the state party and therefore trying to use that to catapult it into national elections. And it hasn't always worked. Sometimes it has, sometimes it hasn't. But they are normally spending a lot more money on the ground in these small states. And that's not to say that the national party is directly going to uh, a random county and saying, hey, you're in Kentucky, but we're going to give you money. No, they'll probably transfer it to the state RNC, and then from there to the state RNC, we'll allocate it properly, blah, blah, blah. So there's a, there's a reason that they give, but also they could probably, you know, as a person who understands that maybe you could cut a few things here, a few things there, you want to keep a positive balance sheet, you don't want to spend all your money at one time, Maybe they could, you know, ease up on some of the extra spending. Maybe there's places that they already have a really strong ground game where they don't necessarily need to be expanding it even further. Maybe there are different counties where there's secretly a lot of Republicans, but they feel as though the stats are showing them, oh, well, hey, this is a pretty blue county. And they get out there and they realize, okay, there are a lot more Republicans now, or at least there are a lot more people willing to vote Republican after blah, blah, blah issues so they could cut back there. There are probably lots of measures they could do going forward. Now, that's not to say I know the entire ballgame, but I think they should at least acknowledge that, hey, yes, we are spending a lot of money, but also we could tighten the belt a little bit more. And even if they can't tighten it that much, they should at least try because it's not even about the fact that they are spending a lot of money on the ground game. It's the perception that this article gives, which is the RNC is running low on cash. If people don't see you as a vehicle to succeed as a party anymore, just like if this was true for the DNC, if people don't see a reason for you to exist because you're not doing your job properly, you're not actually getting people 
to win, then your legitimacy is questioned. So even just appearing to tighten your belt is important in this case because you want people to feel as though their money is being used properly and feel okay donating to you because they feel that you could still get the people they want elected into office. So there's a little bit of a contrast here, and I'll read a a quick excerpt from this longer paragraph that they have towards the end of the article. Quote, over the midterms, the RNC actually outraised the DNC by $30 million, according to FEC data. But it also sprung a much larger hole, spending $401.4 million to the DNC's $315 million, a difference of more than $85 million. While coming up short in the election, the RNC spending was one of the main fronts the GOP lawyer Harmet Dillon's challenges to McDonald's leadership last year and was heavily litigated in the media, including the conservative presses, end quote. So this is obviously, obviously something that the internal leadership that the party is battling. They're saying, hey, McDonald, we don't necessarily agree with the way that you're going about things. There was a challenge. And then, guess what? She won out. So obviously, some people have faith in her system, and maybe it's just the donor class, maybe it's just the upper echelons of the party, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the numbers will pick up here soon. Maybe the RNC will actually inspire some of those voters to give more money and actually see what they're doing on the ground, and maybe if they get a good, crucial victory here in Kentucky or other states that have 2023 elections and they turn out red, maybe that will also inspire people to say, okay, hey, the RNC is using their money wisely. But it is about appearances at this point, especially when you're on a national stage. So got to tread carefully, maybe tighten the belt a little bit. And then moving forward, that's when you really, you know, after you've saved, after you've built up a little bit of interest, you know, a little bit of credit, that's when you spring it on that big victory in 2024. At least that's in theory. If certain people are the nominee, you know, you may not, you may want to even save the money and say, okay, we don't think that they'll win. That that could be a legitimate strategy. I just don't think it will look good for you, especially in an age where we are constantly worried about appearances and constantly fighting media coverage, especially when you're someone that the media doesn't necessarily love, which is, yes, the RNC, if you're understanding what I'm saying. All right, so let's jump to our second article that also comes from The Daily Beast, how the end of Trump could come in Iowa and New Hampshire. So, obviously, it looks like Trump's got this thing locked up. I mean, there is no, there is no way that it's impossible. I'm not saying there's not an alternative universe. I'm not saying it's not impossible in this one where Trump is overthrown by some other candidate, especially with certain secretaries of their states. They're saying, hey, no, no, we're we're going to make sure that he's not on the ballot or whether he's indicted and he's in jail. There are lots of different options that could throw him off. But right now, it looks like he has the largest lead and it could end up being the Republican nominee for president in the 2024 elections. But this article, the Daily Flip article, gives a interesting path. You know, it's not actually that far out there, but it's quite simple. But it is something that they say is going to be hard to achieve. They say you need to get Iowa and you need to get New Hampshire. And on a lot of the polls right now, you know, the people that are leading in New Hampshire, or at least in second place in New Hampshire, like Chris Christie, 
are not necessarily leading in Iowa, who are leaning a little bit more towards DeSantis, maybe a little bit of a vague after the recent debate, but probably more realistically, they're looking towards Haley now. They were looking at Scott for a little bit there, but DeSantis seems to be the second best option. So obviously it's not going to be easy for whoever the number two or number three is to get both Iowa and New Hampshire, but they do lay it out as it could be that simple in that if they do win those two states, if they just win those two states, it could really, really hurt his momentum going into South Carolina. Quote, the only way to beat Donald Trump in a primary, Republican strategist Mike Murphy told me recently, is for someone else to win in Iowa and New Hampshire. He hastened to add that it probably has to be the same person winning both states, a complicating factor to be sure. As we enter September, it is perhaps time to be reminded that there is no National Republican Primary Election Day. Instead, it's 56 elections, every state plus Washington, D.C., plus five territories, spanning approximately six months. Those of us who cover politics intellectually know this, but even we still need to be reminded of that. Although national polls are instructive, they fail to capture the dynamic nature of the primary process. Sure, Trump is up by 40 points nationally, but what would happen to those 40 points if he went 0 for 2? This scenario is unlikely, but not impossible. Of course, the odds only increase if candidates like Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Tim Scott at all campaign hard. You have basically to live in these early states, is what they're saying, and are willing to actually run against Trump, end quote. So... There's a few different paths forward. There's some a consolidation path. Maybe you have a Burgum. Maybe you have an Asa dropout. Maybe you have a Scott dropout. I mean, we already saw Francis Suarez, the mayor of Miami, who not a lot of people knew about unless you're from Florida or Miami beforehand. He has already dropped out. Maybe you'll see some other mainstream people like uh, a Haley if she really feels that she can't make it or she just doesn't want Trump so she's willing to back somebody else like DeSantis drop out. Maybe you'll see a Vivek drop out, which I don't I don't see. But these are all possibilities on the long road to the primaries. And that will be one path. There will be consolidation among the other members of the party into one person like DeSantis, or maybe even a Haley at this point, it's being floated. I don't necessarily agree. I think that she has the bona fides, uh, you know, the, the normal talking points. I think she's got a lot of good experience. You know, she has good foreign policy, blah, 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 blah. But I don't see her as a viable candidate going up against Trump. I'm sorry. It's just not something that I can really imagine her getting the nomination. Now, if she was the presidential nominee and for the Republican Party and she was going up against Biden, I think she could very easily whoop Biden. I think even if they subbed in somebody else that she could easily whoop a lot of them. But I don't see her coming out of the primary process on top. I don't think this is her year. I don't necessarily know if she'll ever have a year. The party has shifted too far away. The base that is very active and very passionate, but for mainly one person and one brand of politics, they do not resonate with her core message anymore. And, you know, the libertarian side of the party, the more populist side, is not really going to like her approach to constantly keeping wars going that they don't necessarily agree with, that they don't want to be caught up in eventually.
And that's just my opinion. That doesn't mean it's true. But that's one path of consolidation. The other path is whoever wins Iowa. Normally someone different wins New Hampshire, but it's not impossible that somebody could win both of them. It's the slow, slow chip. It's the chip away at his lead one primary at a time. Since these are held over six months, if you really have someone who has a lot of support behind them, they get the first two, they get Iowa, or even if they just get Iowa, and then they may not get New Hampshire, but they get Iowa, and then maybe people start to question, oh, is this really Teflon Don? Is he really unbeatable? If they can get away with that and slowly chip at that lead and use the momentum and have a winning mentality backing them, more people are going to see them as a viable candidate. If they're also electable versus Joe Biden, more people will be like, okay, so this person's moving up. We still think that he could be Joe Biden, like a lot of people think Trump could. And also, he doesn't come with the baggage that Trump comes with. That is also another path forward. So I spoke about the electability argument there, and this article has a very, very interesting point of view on it as well. Quote, it strikes me that the electability argument has the most potential to hurt Trump in a Republican primary. To be sure, so far, it has not moved the needle. However, it has the benefit of allowing Trump opponents to criticize him without implicating the voters or the candidates themselves for their past support of Trump. What is more, as indictments and arraignments give way to imminent court appearances and as voters in early states begin to accept the awesome responsibility that they have been granted for selecting a Republican standard bearer, it may find more purchase. Again, keep in mind that Trump's lead in key early states is not as seemingly insurmountable as national surveys might lead you to believe. What is more, there is precedent for leads evaporating. For example, Barack Obama boasted a 13-point polling lead over Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire just one day before losing to her. So yes, the polls are not everything, especially when you look at them in a national scale. And yes, I do believe the electability argument, which has been touted by a lot of talking heads on the right. I mean, Ben Shapiro has been talking about this for quite some time. And, you know, Kyle Kalinske comes back with, oh, they don't care about electability. It's more about vibes, man. And Trump has just got the vibes. But I think a lot of the primary voters do care about electability. They do care about the fact that if we're going to put somebody up there in the from the primary process that actually doesn't have a chance of winning the presidency, why are we even participating? Now, of course, you know, some people have really strong loyalties to those vibe checks that they've you know, been feeling out for the last few years. That is, of course, fair. But I do think that the more rational side of the base, eh, that's not to say that the other side isn't rational, the side that is more worried about getting a Republican in and not caring about which Republican it is, they're playing a practical game, that side of the RNC is going to seriously think these sort of things over. And it could be a very important calculation when they're trying to figure out who they want to elect or who they want to put in front of the national audience of voters and say, hey, this person can be a good president. So I don't know if anybody's actually going to be able to chip away at his lead, but they're providing a path forward here. They're even providing a strategy. Talk about electability. I think, let's be clear, there are lots of polls that say Trump is you know, a more shoo-in to win against Biden, or he's at least polling similar to Biden now, and he wasn't polling the exact same way in 2022, so maybe that it means that he'll actually you know, win because when he was behind in those polls, he came close, and now if he's tied in those polls, he'll come up. 
the argument could be that pollsters have fixed their metrics, even though that it is very, very unlikely. I don't, you know, polls say one thing. The, a lot of people use them. I use them myself to make a quick judgment, but they are not the end-all, be-all. I'd rather go talk to people on the ground myself and see what the sentiment is. But, you know, sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes I can't go to Iowa. Sometimes I can't go to Oklahoma. I can't go to Texas to get this sort of information. So you have to rely on polls a little bit. But as we've seen before, they're not the most reliable thing in the world. So we'll see how it all plays out. We have a few months, you know, what? We're in September now officially. So we have about four months before we have to start worrying about this more seriously. We'll see things consolidate. There's another few, I believe there's at least two more debates coming up before then. So we'll see. If Trump doesn't come to those debates, maybe somebody can consolidate. If Trump does come to those debates, he'll probably dominate them. And if he doesn't mess up on stage, if he's not directly attacked, then he will probably get the nomination. But for those of you who don't want him to get the nomination, who are passionate about it, go out and make your voice heard. For those of you who do want him to get the nomination, go get your voice heard. So on and so forth. Either way, just just participate. You know, it's your civic duty. And if you're a registered Republican, you know, you should be talking, speaking, speaking out about what you care about. And this is one of those things where we want everybody to have their voice heard, whether you are a really far populist or whether you're on the libertarian side, even if you're a Democrat who is, or at least democratically leaning, but you are registered to the RNC for some reason, and you want somebody else who is not Donald Trump, get your opinion out there. You know, there is a beautiful thing called democracy, called this republic that we live in, and if you don't exercise those freedoms, you know, it really, do you have a right to complain if something doesn't go the way that you like it? That's how I was always told it. And maybe that's not fair whatsoever, but that's how I view it. All right, so let's jump to our final article that comes from the Wall Street Journal. This one, you know, when I was, when I was first reading it, I thought it was really interesting. The headline reads, Private Equity Hedge Funds Sue SEC to Fend Off Oversight. So for a long, 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 long time, a lot of private companies, a lot of different corporations have been trying to make sure that their ability to operate is not infringed upon by the government. And this is just one more example of these companies really taking it to the regulatory bodies that overlook them and try to make sure that they are not controlled overall. So let's jump to a quick quote that really describes what's going on at first, and then we'll do one more quote that actually describes how this rule would be implemented and how this oversight would directly affect these companies. Quote, a coalition representing the biggest private equity and hedge funds sued the Securities and Exchange Commission on Friday to block new regulation aimed at giving investors more transparency and better terms from asset managers. The lawsuit filed in a conservative federal appeals court argues that the SEC overstepped its legal authority in completing the regulations last week. Plaintiffs include the Managed Funds Association, American Investment Council, National Venture Capital Association, and the National Association of Private Fund Managers. An SEC spokeswoman said the agency, quote, undertakes rulemaking consistent with its authorities and laws governing the administrative process, and we will vigorously defend the challenge rule in court, quote, end quote. 
SEC Chair Gary Gensler said last week that he feels very confident in the agency's conclusion that it does have the power to implement the rules, end quote. And it's actually, what's going on here is actually a little bit more nuanced than that. I mean, let's be clear, they may actually have the authority to implement these rules, at least that's what Gary Gensler thinks, and we'll see how it comes out in the courts. But what the coalition here that's fighting against it is actually talking about is they didn't actually go about the rules process properly. One of their complaints is that they didn't have the proper amount of comment period when implementing these rules. So if you don't know a lot of the administrative state, how they do things is they start generating rules, they put them out for comment periods, they take those comments under consideration, and then once the rule is going to be implemented properly, they put it up again for more comments, ridicule. So everything's supposed to be relatively transparent, which is ironic because that's what they're exactly trying to do here with the private equity funds. They're saying, hey, you need to be more transparent. And if it really does come out in the lawsuit that they didn't go through those rule-making processes correctly and they didn't actually give enough time for comments and concerns and pushback to be made by these companies, then that could be an interesting twist and a little bit of an ironic one. But there is a little bit more to this. So let's talk about the rule a little bit more in depth. Quote, adopted by the SEC last week in a three to two vote along party lines, the rules apply to private funds, which manage nearly $27 trillion for institutional investors such as pension funds and endowments, as well as wealthy individuals. They require managers of private funds to provide their investors with quarterly financial statements detailing their performance and expenses and to undergo annual audits. The new regulations also restrict managers from certain activities that the SEC sees as harmful, such as offering some investor better terms than others via deals known as side letters. Quote, the rule exceeds the commission's statutory authority and were adopted without compliance with notice and comment requirements and otherwise are arbitrary, capricious, and abuse the discretion and contrary to law lead plaintiff's attorney, Eugene Scalia, wrote in his lawsuit, end quote. And yes, Scalia, it is the son of the late former justice, Antonin Scalia. This is Eugene Scalia. You know, he's fighting back. He's staying along with his dad's overall message. And I definitely think that there is an interesting argument to be had here. Should people be able to give other people preferential deals? On a foreign policy basis, I don't necessarily think that we, we should be giving different nations, you know, or at least is there's a serious argument or conversation to be had about you know preferential trading statuses that we give to certain countries. Maybe we, we shouldn't do that. Now, if we're trying to have a more protective economy, I, there's an argument for that. But there's definitely a conversation that needs to be had there. But is it okay in a private business here in the United States? Well, my question is, do different companies not negotiate differently? Do a... Okay, so let's say that you have a construction firm and they really want to work with one company or another. They have to open things up to a bid and maybe one company, you know, their price isn't necessarily low enough, but they say along with this price that we will be offering you. We'll also give you this benefits. We'll cover travel costs, blah, 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 blah. Maybe there's a few different addendums that they add to that contract. Is it not okay 
that the person who put out the bid says, hey, yeah, well, you, you may make us pay an extra 50 cents for every 100 pounds of lumber that we're going to get from you. But if you're covering transportation, that can make it back. So there are certain advantages that come with more large-scale institutional investors who have a little bit more private money than the pension funds and things like that, who have individuals who don't necessarily have as much money. Imagine, one, they have a little bit of extra capital that they can throw around. Also, they'll tell their friends. So why is that not a valid business strategy to entice more rich people to come to your side? Now, yes, I guess you could argue that they're treating different people differently, but it's also just like a a tax system that we have. If you make more money, then in the way that we have it structured now, it's okay to say, okay, you make this certain amount of income so we can treat you differently than somebody else that makes this amount of income. So why is that bad for the private equity companies to do, but completely okay for the federal government to do? Yes, that is whataboutism. Yes, that is comparing two separate things, but... Remember, they're a private business trying to make money. And if this is a valid strategy to make money, I mean, if you can have, if you're a baseball stadium and you can have two different types of customers, the normal paying seat customers who just get a ticket, and then you have your box customers. Guess what? The box customers, they're paying a, a little bit more. These people that have large amount sums of money, they're paying a little bit more because they're investing more institutionally. They're putting more larger sums in there, so their management fees are going to be higher. But guess what? In order to entice them to come, the box people, the ones that are in that nice fancy box, you have to give them a few more amenities. They're willing to pay a little bit more for that. So why is that not okay when it comes to trading? I mean, let's be clear. I'm willing and open to hear lots of different opinions on it. But when I first heard it, I was like, okay, so they're treating people that they can get more money out of a little bit differently. It's just like people who travel a lot with a a credit card. They spend a lot more money. Uh, Like if you have an Advantage credit card or an Air American Express travel card, they spend a lot more money on that travel card. Therefore, they get more benefits. They get to use the lounge. They get to have rollover on their miles. Maybe it's easier for them to transfer a flight that they can't take today, but they have to take tomorrow. You know, it's it's these sort of things that, you know, at least stoked or came into my mind when I was first hearing this article. But if you have contra points, if you have things that you disagree with me with, throw them down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what you have to say. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Upworthy. Mama dog showing gratitude to a woman for feeding her puppies proves a mother's love is universal. So, I mean, like they just said, a mother's love is, it's unique, it's formidable, and it even comes from different people and different species. And this is one of those heart-touching stories where I don't know if this woman that's giving the food is a mom, but maybe she is. And maybe that's why she's able to relate to the mom-dog experience where she's not necessarily able to feed her kids and she's willing to give a little bit of what she has. Quote, in the clip, the woman is feeding puppies under a roof and she gives them the food. The mother of the puppies comes close to her and shows her affection for taking care of her babies, end quote. I mean, a little kindness can open or even change a lot of the most jaded and cynical hearts. And maybe this dog would have been a little bit more aggressive, you know, trying to protect her babies. But you start doing nice things, kind things for people and animals, and they treat you with love. And I think that's a lesson that we can take away from this besides just that, oh, yeah, dogs and humans get along. It's a really cute video. Quote, the heartwarming scene proves that a mother's love is universal. It fills our life with love and joy. End quote. 
And if you want to see any of these cute photos from today or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of these stories, as well as the links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. A little bit more commentary style, less quoting from articles, things like that. All right, with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.